Hi all, thanks so much for watching. Speaking of making healthcare work for you, different perspectives and empowering solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta. And today we are welcomed by Dr. Kim Butler-Willis, who is the uh, co-founder and managing director of Goodstock Consulting. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So I think to start, just tell us a little bit about what Goodstock Consulting is and how you started that because you have a pretty cool inspiration story. Yeah, so Goodstock Consulting is a firm that I started with two of my colleagues, Kelly McKenzie and Dr. Ebony Hilton. Uh, back in 2015, the Emanuel Massacre at uh, Mother Emanuel Church left me short a family member and it really, and it also left me pensive and how I can start to live a life that with meaning and purpose every day. And so though we were all working full time, I recognized that in their language and their actions that these ladies kind of match my fly and passion for healthcare, but also for equitable healthcare and uh, loyal with loyalty to marginalized communities. So I approached them and the best way to get ladies to do anything wine and cheese people, wine and cheese. So I invited them over for brunch and that brunch uh, formed Goodstock Consulting uh, and really Goodstock in the name because we wanna remember and uh, remind communities that you come from Goodstock, regardless to where you're from, regardless of how much you earn, regardless of what you've done in life, you come from good stock and how do, can we make sure that organizations are reminded of that every day and build strategic plans that resemble that. Uh, and so that's what we do through good stock and we've been doing it since 2017 with over 20 clients across the country. And so some of those clients you've mentioned, you have quite a number of them within the healthcare realm from St. Jude to Pfizer. So you've really had a pretty cool scope of clients so far. And so when you work with them, you said that you're working on strategic diversity, equity, and inclusion. So what are some of the things that you do when you go to an organization? How are you helping them advance their healthcare and better the system for both patients and for their employees? Yeah. So whenever we engage with a new client, we want to meet them where they are. We want to understand who you are, where you want to go and how we can get you there. And so it starts with doing an assessment of your team, an assessment of your consumers, be it clients, patients, um, employees, depending on how we're looking at it and your key partners. What do they think about the work that you do? How do they, um, how would they grade your diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts? And how can we build a strategic plan that's anchored in equity so that we don't have to continue to treat it as if it's an appendage or extra burden or more administrative work for staff to do? It really should be the core of what we're all doing because equity has a place in every industry. That's amazing, Kim. I think you know you're just doing God's work, and uh, uh, you know it's it's really tremendous to see that. When we were speaking earlier, you talked a little bit about how you get your clients to that vulnerable place where they can really start opening up. So maybe you can describe that journey a little bit. How you do that? What's your me uh, methodology? As well as why is it so important to get to that place of vulnerability? Yeah, Dr. Gupta. So it's so important. Before I hit on those three things, the three theories that really guide our work. It's so important to get to that vulnerability because we all know that conversations about race and discrimination and bias can be controversial. It can be, um, it can be triggering. It can be really sensitive. And if we do not 
set a platform where we can build some genuine connections because connections will drive change. Uh, relationships will drive results. And so we first have to connect with the humanity in each of us before we can start to have such big and um, sometimes convoluted and abstract conversations. So that's why it's important that we start off with some level setting and um, comfort building, I should say, and even trust building. But the three theories that we use to guide our work, the first is appreciative inquiry. So appreciative inquiry is a theory out of the 1970s and big organizations like Pepsi and Walmart and um, Bank of America, they use the same approach as well, but it encourages us to spend more of our time focusing on strengths and positives of, of issues, of organizations, of teams versus the deficits, what we don't have. So when we walk into a community, oftentimes, especially in public health, we start picking that community apart about, you know, there are not enough sidewalks, there are not enough jobs, the poverty is high, but instead we should walk into communities and say, wow, you have a strong faith-based network here in this community. Wow, you have parents that actually show up to your PTA. Wow, you have a principal that is fully ingrained in community. How do we use those assets to start to build outcomes that will be mutually beneficial? So that's the first approach. The second is human-centered design. So this is a theory out of the tech world that um, teaches us public health folk and healthcare folk how to look at the process from beginning to end um, through the lens of the consumer. So again, consumer being synonymous with your patient, your client, whomever is coming in for your business. How do we, from your website, so from virtual to physical, from beginning to end, how do we look at this process through the lens of your consumer and making sure that we're centering their experience in the consumer and not in the paperwork or the process or the policy or the forms. I love forms, no shade to forms. And then the third thing that we do is we provide edutainment. So this is heavy stuff. This can be emotionally draining um, to talk about diversity and racism and you know, and bias every day, all day. And so good stuff, we wanna make sure that we bring a sense of flair to that conversation. We want you to put your guards down and be able to laugh. I mean, not everything has to be so serious, though some things are, we can still find, uh, we can still find a smile in this work. We can still be, uh, make fun of our own mistakes and learn from them and find experiential ways that we can all do that together directly and indirectly. You said in 2020, there was a lot of openness in general and people were really receptive to this. But now that, you know, we're in 2022, hard to believe, but true, that it, that door is closed a little bit. So what are some of the things that people can do to start to put the wedge in that door to open it a little bit more and start to make change? Yeah. So I actually read Kaiser Family Foundation actually published a report that shows that the um, perception of the country where, and they disaggregated it, I want to say by race and political party and even gender maybe about sentiments about DEI efforts. And if they truly believe that organizations will remain committed to everything we said we would do after George Floyd's murder in 2020. Yeah, that went down. That's going down. I think um, COVID fatigue is real. People are starting to feel um, emotionally burnt out. Um, compassion fatigue is for real. And so how do we counteract that? 
continuing to talk, keeping the conversation going, being less judgmental about people who do not think in the same way we do, meeting people where they are. So if you, uh, if we have different opinions about um, COVID or about masks, I'm not going to shame you by playing these. Uh, I find them awkward videos, you know, where you show the person who's like, I don't like a mask. I'm not wearing a mask. And then the next video is of them like in the hospital on a ventilator. We don't want to do that. That's shaming people into doing something. And that's never really how people move to positive behavior change or sustain that positive behavior change. So how can we learn why you think the way you do so that we can, again, meet you where you are and determine and negotiate how we get you to where we think you should be. Can you tell me the red, yellow, um, green light? I like that when you were talking about that before is your ability to influence personal change. Yeah. So I try to dissect people into red, yellow, and, uh, red, green, yellow, and red light <laughs> categories. So my green people are the people who think like me, they match my passion. We vibe, we get it right. That's my choir. My yellow light people are the people kind of on the fence. Like I get it, but I'm really not that into it. I can talk to you. We can still learn a lot from each other. And, uh, bi-directionally like you I can learn why you're hesitant you can learn why I'm so passionate and we can we can find common ground but my red light folks are the folks that are not interested not passionate don't care don't even want to hear it just want to debate for the sake of debating that can deplete your energy and you're going to need so much energy for this journey and those are the people that I just choose not to engage in when they move into that yellow space, we can engage. But what I can't do is try to convince you to think like me, because that's not the purpose of conversation and thought sharing. It's what not happens when you meet like those me. uh, red light people within a client? Because I'm sure they're there, right? They're they're there in, in, in all organizations. And then that was one thought. And then the other thought is, how does that connect back to the idea that you started with, which is that everybody comes from good stock? So can you reconcile those two points and kind of like, how do you break through? Because I'm sure that's got to be a big challenge with clients. Yeah, Dr. Gupta, I actually had, we did a focus group with um, some consumers of a client and I had someone tell me in my face, he said, you know what? I think what you do is stupid and you should be fired. This is a waste of money for this organization. And I said, well, thank you for your opinion. Tell me why you feel that way. And so he went on and he gave his thoughts and I was like, okay, well, if I, if I had your experiences, that would make sense. So thank you for sharing. So who's next? And we went on and I still kept him as a part of the conversation because again, I don't want to shame you because of your thoughts. You're open to those thoughts. And uh, he remained a part of the community. We remained in conversation and he emailed me afterwards and said, thank you for being so professional. And I was like, that's all I can be because regardless to how you act, regardless to how, um, regardless of what you do, I'm going to maintain my own character because you come from good stock and I have connected and I see the humanity in you regardless. And so I'm always going to treat you like, I'm always going to be respectful because you're a human being. And that's what good stock is about. You, 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 you don't have to think like us. You're human enough and you deserve respect. Fantastic. Yeah. 
Can you share, you know, I, I love that story because it's kind of like, unfortunately, there will be naysayers everywhere. And yet you still have to remember that they're also, you know, good human beings and they just have different experiences. Can you share some other, other, you know, particular challenges along this journey? I'm sure it's not been easy with the level of clients you're working with and the nature of the, of the change you're trying to drive. What else makes this so difficult? Uh, bureaucracy, politics. Uh, I used to be a news freak. I loved CNN and MSNBC. Like it stayed on the TV all day long. We just kind of, it was our background noise. But I found that in listening to the news every day, I stopped thinking for myself. I just was, whenever I heard something or whenever I knew something was coming out or breaking news, I turned to the news to see how I should think about that. That is so wrong. I was caught up in an algorithm or something maybe. This but is why I, everybody has shiplap, including me. Yeah. Because <laughs> in my house, it's HGTV and whatever they're telling you, I'm like, damn it, I need the shiplap. Right, Chip and Gianna, they have it, <laughs> right, right? And so I found that um, while I was so strict on my kids about technology time, I had to flip that mirror around to myself and my husband and say, okay, I think we're consuming too much of this. Like I, I'm feeling um, heavy Every time I watch the news, I'm feeling heavy every time I have to have a conversation with someone who doesn't look like me or think like me. And that's not my natural personality. And so I had to find ways to unplug. And I, I think, um, especially as we work more from home and we become more reserved because of COVID, we have to unplug more. We have to get back to the basics of genuine human connection, old school low tech, um, call somebody instead of an email or a text. And I think that's how we've lost some sense of humanity um, over the generations because we don't have to touch and connect um, as often as we used to. I think that's such an amazing point to talk about the humanity of it. And you've mentioned that in a very a number of different ways over this conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is so important because whether, you know, whether you're watching HGTV or whether you're watching MSNBC or Fox news, it is so easy to just, you know, feed yourself more of what your ideals are. And the same thing happens on social media, yeah. but whenever you can get out and just talk to other people, you can remember like, oh my gosh, like, okay, we've both experienced somebody with colon cancer. We've both experienced yeah. this situation of not being heard by a doctor or as a doctor, I've not, I've experienced this, you know, I'm so caught up in all these different things I have to do that I can't just focus on my patients. So what are, from a patient perspective, some of those things that when they go in and they might forget, you might feel like you're just like part of a, a system, you're a number they're pulling at a deli counter. What can you do when you're standing in that office and you're feeling a little struggle, you're feeling timid to remember, okay, I'm a human, that doctor's a human, that receptionist is a human, the insurance agent, what can we do to come together to actually get these goals achieved? I would first say as a patient walking into any health system, know that you have power. In fact, these systems exist because of you. You drive what happens in healthcare systems. And so you should assert yourself as such, ask questions, um, demand answers and demand it in a way that you understand it. 
uh, pick up that material in the literature that they have in the waiting room. Like it's there for you, but make sure that it's in a way that you can consume it and you can understand it. Health literacy is a very big problem, especially in South Carolina, um, because our literacy levels are so low. But regardless of industry, we have to make sure that we are drafting information that is digestible because communication is bi-directional, right? If the consumer cannot understand what we're saying, then what are we saying? Um, and then the last thing I would say, and I think this is for everyone, you, you mentioned the humanity again, and clearly that's something that I focus on a lot, but it's because of affinity bias. So affinity bias is the tendency to be attracted to people who look and think like you. And so I try to push people on the three tiers of connections. I try to push people to that third tier. So that first tier would be connecting with people who look and think like you. That's safe, right? And it's easy and it feels good. It makes you feel good because the people are saying what you think is true. And so you feel smart and it's awesome. Love it. But that second tier is connecting with people who don't look like you, but also think like you. And so that's a little bit easier too. So though we may have had different experiences because we look differently, essentially we think the same. So we can still have a pretty decent conversation. Where I strive people to go is that third tier where you have to sit in conversation with people who don't look like you or think like you. That's when you start to really flex that humanity muscle because you have to find ways to still maintain character while finding ways to connect with a person just because they're a person. Mm -hmm. And I truly believe we all have some point of intersection with everyone on the face of this earth. When you were just saying that, Kim, I was thinking that's an interesting overlap between your green, yellow, and red. Do you see it that way as well? Uh, you know, ultimately, is it is it, you know, that the greens are the people that we're most comfortable with and the yellows we're sort of comfortable with and the reds we're really not. So we avoid them and you yeah. know, trying to get us to interact more in that zone. Yes. Yes. And so I, I thought of that tier because I'm always pushing myself on that third one because yeah. I don't like the reds. I it's emotionally exhausting, but I have to learn how to navigate in a sea of reds because we live in a world where reds exist, right? And so in order to, I can't, practice makes permanent, as my daughter's teacher would say, practice makes permanent. And so if I don't practice engaging with this group of people, then I won't know what to do when I'm truly faced with a strong red, you know, that may not be a friend. And so you, we have to build, sometimes you have to build opportunities, circumstances so that you can practice and determine who you are in that space so that if it really happens, you kind of have some gauge on how you want to react and hopefully you do so in a way that fits the goal. I was thinking back to our conversation that we were having earlier. We're trying to, you know, think about it a little bit more, I guess, say provocatively. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and how they've recently come out with the quintuple aim, which is building upon the triple aim and then the quadruple aim. So the triple aim, for those of our viewers who don't know, it, uh, it starts with uh, focusing on individual patient experience and then adding in the, uh, the idea of population health as well as costs of care. Uh, and then uh, a few years ago, we started talking about the quadruple aim, which adds to that provider experience and, and, and burnout that 
we've all been seeing. And now we're talking about the quintuple aim, which is actually going right back to what you're saying. I think it's the core of what you're doing, which is phenomenal that you've been so many years ahead of this. And that is about starting the conversations with the idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion, instead of assuming that it will be there and uh, adding it on as an afterthought. And, and the provocative part of this, uh, Kim, you know, I'd love to get your, your thoughts on this back on the air is that, you know, we, we frame these ideas, they seem helpful to us. I think we certainly, certainly all gravitate to them and feel resonant with them. At the same time, it's been a couple of decades and, you know, there's still so much that we're trying to accomplish on the triple aim and then let alone the quadruple aim where we're just seeing burnout flaming, you know, throughout. Uh, and now we have the quintuple aim. So are we just chasing the tail? Are we kind of too late to the to the table? Uh, I really appreciate your, your thoughts on this uh, for our viewers. We're definitely late in healthcare. Um, we focus so much on treatment and less on prevention. Um, if you even look at the medical school curriculum, we just started most recently and not even all institutions incorporating lessons about public health and social determinants of health in the medical school curriculum, right? And so we, we are behind the eight ball and culture change on this level is such a huge, complicated and complex and convoluted uh, thing to do that uh, it's gonna take a lot of time. It's gonna take a whole lot of time, uh, but I appreciate the frameworks because it gives us a shared language. It gives us something that we can go back to that's visual, that has words associated to it so that we all know exactly what we're trying to do. Uh, and even if we're doing it differently, at least there's some sense of fidelity because we're following the same framework, right? But behavior change takes a long time. I told you all off uh, recording, I was like, it, it takes it take me more than a year to get on a treadmill. So I can only imagine how long it will take for us to start to see some of these changes in healthcare that the quintuple aim um, advises. But if we look at healthcare from 1950, I hope that you know we've seen some changes since 1950. So if we can if we can say that we've seen changes since 1950. I know that we'll see changes in 2050 as well. So it's just about staying the course, staying encouraged. The work does take a long time, but it is possible. And we have to stay encouraged and we have to be vulnerable and allow ourselves to fail forward because we're going to fail a lot. It's just about getting back up. Beautiful. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Along the lines of what you were just saying, I was wondering, you know, even though it seems like it is challenging and it is not seems it is challenging, but I wonder if it's actually less challenging than it may be if we were in another country, because so many countries do have socialized healthcare already. And I wonder if those systems have these, you know, um, you know, systemic racism and other things built into them already. And then the system already exists. So I wonder if it's easier for us, even though it's challenging and it feels like you're going uphill, I wonder if it's a little bit easier because you're having these conversations at the same time, you're trying to change the system into something. And if maybe that is actually positive, does that make sense? Is that it does make sense. It does make sense. And I don't want to, I love the country I'm in, but there are some characteristics about being an American that um, don't always serve us well. So I feel like in America, we are very focused on our individual rights, 
versus the rights of the community in a communal spirit of making sure we're all well. It's more about like, how do I feel? How does this impact me and mine versus us and theirs? And so um, I think that that uh, that cripples us at times because we are not, uh, we were not created to be individualistic in that way like you need people regardless to if you think it or not psychologically emotionally you need people and so um until we can invent these bubbles where we can live by ourselves you're still going to need some people so that's something i think we can work on and then we're also a pretty capitalistic country where money drives a lot of our decision-making um, federally, state, and even individually. And so how can we uh, lean more into wellness and less on profit, or at least find a way to balance the two so that you don't have to make life decisions when it comes to uh, going to work or staying home because you're sick with COVID or going to work or staying home with your children because you don't have a babysitter, like some things you shouldn't have to contend with, you know, it should be stated that family is first and children come first. And how do we provide accommodations so that you can be great at home and at work? But I, I don't know that we as a country have set up systems to make that happen just yet. My final question kind of dovetails with that one. But you said earlier that change starts with a conversation and also probably some unruly girls, which made me laugh. So what are some of those things that have come out of these conversations? Because it does start, and you told us a story earlier in this interview about a person who was very receptive. They were a red light or was not receptive. They were a red light, but then ended up emailing you. So what are some of those revelations that really have stuck with you that people might've said, oh my gosh, you know, wow, I didn't want to do this, but then this happened or whoa, because we did this, this happened. What are some of those things that really, you know, make you realize you're on that track and fulfill you? Just that Stephanie, if someone who's diabolically opposed to DEI or the concept of even, uh, we had some neurosurgeons and they just did not understand why you should have paternity leave. You're a doctor. You need to be here at work. Your wife had a baby. And I'm like, but dads are just as important to babies. And so at the end, they were able to say, I never even thought about he may. I said, but what if it's two dads, two dads with a new baby? They need to be there because they haven't even had the nine months of the planning and grooming, you know, and they just never even thought about it. So every time a client or a um, participant comes up to us after a session or after a meeting and can say that I thought something different today, that's a win for me. And it doesn't even have to be the difference in my direction. I just want you to think for yourself. I want you to unpack your own experiences, unpack your own values and give it new meaning after this conversation, whatever that means for you. We end every session with head, heart, feet. So give me something that from this conversation, give me something that you're still thinking about. Give me something that you're feeling in your heart or give me something that you want to go out and do after you leave here today. And it's amazing what people share because you never know how they're absorbing the information that you're talking about. 
and how it applies to their life because you know you hate to make judgment just based on how someone looks because we all have privileges we all have marginalizations and it's up to you to determine which identity shows up in different circumstances thank you so much i really really love this conversation i feel like we covered the uh, a huge scope of things and we appreciate you thanks so, for having me so powerful thank you so much kim yeah, thanks for having us. Goodstock Consulting, please check us out, www.goodstockconsulting.com. And thank you all for watching. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.